everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parsha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And to explore this week's Sedra Ki Tissa, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Dina Grant, who is Associate Professor of Jewish Studies at Hartford University, where she teaches Hebrew Bible from a historical critical perspective, and also as it's interpreted and lived out by faith communities. She's currently working on the concept of hate in the Hebrew Bible, and has also published Divine Anger, in the Hebrew Bible, which explores varying expressions of God's anger across major biblical collections. So to begin, we read obviously about the molten calf in this week's Sedra, and also at Parshat Ekev in Devarim. I wonder how you see the portrayals as different, and maybe if you could explore as to why this is important. When you look closely at the two tellings, and they're supposed to be two tellings of the same event, you would expect them to be basically the same, but they differ in some interesting ways. And maybe I'll mention a couple. In Kitisa, we read that God gets angry at the people of Israel. And so Moses has to intercede on their behalf. In contrast, in Deuteronomy, we have God gets angry at the people of Israel and at Aaron. For actually having to for actually making the calf. So in that case, Moses ends up having to intercede not just for the people of Israel, but for the people of Israel and on Aaron's behalf as well. So there's clearly differing perspectives or emphases on the role of Aaron. What I find particularly notable is that the outcome of the event differs in the two tellings. In Kitisa, we hear that God punishes the people with a plague, and also Moses requires that the Levites uh, kill their kin. But in contrast, in Deuteronomy, there there is no punishment recalled whatsoever. And there's a lot of discussion about the many differences between these two stories. But what I find particularly interesting is just the simple fact of differences. But the fact that the two accounts describe the same event differently, it suggests that they have different or potentially even differing perspectives on the event. And I think it's important to look at these differences in order to try to understand what are the different perspectives of the different parshiot that describe the story and what are they trying to teach us. Thank you. And obviously maybe unpacking this further, Deuteronomy, of course, does not say that God punishes the Israelites. And perhaps why might be a factor of what was maybe intended as the function of the calf. Could you maybe share some of those traditional understandings of what was the motivation for the golden calf and actually what it was? I think Rashi does see it as an alternative God, but this isn't necessarily accepted by others. 
It, it is quite notable that God doesn't punish the people of Israel. Deuteronomy, by the time I hear about the golden calf, it's, it's considered the apex sin of the people. The Mepharshim definitely try to, I think, understand why this is the case. And I suspect that at least according to some of the Mepharshim, the reason God may not punish the people is ultimately because he does not perceive the golden calf to be worthy of punishment, or at least Deuteronomy doesn't see the punishment as particularly worth mentioning. So the question then is, why not? And I'd suggest the answer has to do with what the golden calf was actually intended to be. And that's, that is not so clear and simple. And Rashi and Ramban and Ibn Ezra have very different opinions on it. Ramban gives perhaps the most robust explanation. He argues that the calf was never intended to be worshipped as a god to, as a god to replace god it was meant only as a replacement for moses as like a new moses and in support ramban points out that the people ask aaron to make elohim because moses took them out of egypt he's missing and we read we don't know where moses is so we want something to replace that. As Ramban understands it, and as he says, what the people were really saying is they are not asking for a new God who does signs and wonders. They're asking for a new leader who can continue to lead them originally from Egypt and now moving forward, perhaps to the promised land. Rashi does, as you mentioned, does see the golden calf as a replacement of God. But what he tries to do is he tries to rationalize why the people would ask for such a thing. And he does this by citing a midrash to explain why the people made this calf. And it's really interesting. In this midrash, the people of Israel were led by the Satan to believe that Moses was dead. The Satan actually showed them an image of Moses lying dead on a bier in the heavens. If you think about it, it's not crazy for them to think that Moses is dead. He went up on the mountain for over a month with who knows how much food and drink. It's not recorded. So it's not crazy to think that maybe he just didn't make it, especially in Exodus when we hear that he is delayed. So according to Rashi, the people wanted, one would say, a new Elohim or new Elohim because they lost their intermediary to the old Elohim. It's as if they concluded that the whole system that, that they'd been working with of one single fragile human intermediary, and humans, of course, can die, connecting them to one single deity, it just doesn't work for them. It's not reliable. And so they want to chuck the system and replace it with a system of many gods with no frail human intermediaries. Third, and also fascinating suggestion, is offered by Ibn Ezra. And that's that the calf wasn't meant to be a new God or even a new Moses, but rather it was meant as a concrete pedestal for God, a place for God's presence to rest. And this being the case, even Ezra's correct, then the calf should be seen more as an illegitimate accoutrement of worship, one might say similar to the Asherot and the Matzevot and the places where they weren't allowed, a way to worship rather than the actual worship of a foreign deity. So these are three really different views of what's going on here. 
And what I find notable about these different opinions is that they all seem to qualify or downplay the people's guilt in one way or another. For Ramban and even Ezra, Israel didn't worship a foreign god. And for Rashi, they did, but it was because they lost all hope in a system that looked reasonably like it wasn't working. And why would the Mepharshim attempt to downplay the people's guilt? There's a variety of reasons. But if we look at the text and we see that in Deuteronomy, the people get off without a scratch, even though God initially dis- decided to or threatened to destroy them. Even if we think about Exodus, where God says he was going to destroy them all and he does not, the Mepharshim may be trying to explain this, trying to explain the narrative in the best way possible. And they turn back to what were the people trying to do as if the intention relates to um, the more lenient outcome than what might have been expected. Fascinating such diversity of approach. I wonder if you might share perhaps thoughts around a connection between the calf and the ark suddenly the way you were speaking about ibn ezra makes makes me think of a connection there and i believe there is a connection and especially if we take the view of ibn ezra that the calf was meant as a kind of pedestal for god if you think about the ark and what the ark is and what the ark looks like so it's a receptacle intended to hold the tablets the luchot and above it above the ark are the kruvim, the cherubs of gold, which are these winged creatures of sort. And these concrete objects, the ark and the kruvim, they had religious, metaphorical, spiritual imagery attached to them in the poetry of the Hebrew Bible and throughout the Hebrew Bible. If we read about the kruvim, they are referred to, in the Psalms in particular, as the throne of God. We'll read in the Psalms, that God, the King, Yoshev Keruvim, God sits enthroned on the Keruvim. We also read that the Ark is God's footstool where he rests his legs. The Ark is referred to as Hadom Raglav. So if we think about that's what the people of Israel had in their head, or at least what was, in, was intended in making the calf, they could have been trying to do something similar. They could have been attempting to bring God down to entice God down by providing him a throne. Their sin was that it was an illegitimate, illegitimate throne. It was not the throne that is going to be commanded. And this is important because some verses suggest that the way the ark worked and God on the throne worked is that when the people were righteous, God would descend upon the Kruvim and sit on his throne. And as we read in, in the book of Yechezkel and Ezekiel, when the people sinned, God ascended from his throne and distanced himself from the people. This is very different imagery, let's say, than what we have elsewhere of God's in an idol. This is, we refer to this as an iconic worship, imageless worship. But an iconic worship, God is much more, much more free. He's not bound by an idol. He can come and go as he please, pleases based on perhaps the people's righteousness. I want, looking perhaps a bit more broadly within the context of the ancient Near East, just what kind of light that throws on this particular episode with the golden calf there's there's a lot of 
ways we can think about it. People talk about calves in the ancient Near East, in Canaan, being worshipped as gods or bulls. One one thing that I find interesting, and again, it's, it relates to even Ezra's opinion, is that we have across the ancient Near East and across time to some extent, similar a similar image of a king enthroned, a king enthroned on what we might call a crove, but what was probably a kind of winged sphinx. We see that image in the ancient Near East in a number of places. A classic example that's often brought up is that of the carved image of him sitting on a throne of winged sphinxes like the Kruvim. And the idea could be that like the Kruvim, they held the deity. And so again, it wouldn't have been unheard of for the people of Israel to think of a calf as a place for the God to come down and reside, because that is something that was seen in the ancient Near Eastern context of the time. And then maybe casting ourselves from the ancient Near East to today, I wonder really what is the importance of this episode for us today? What are the kind of lessons that we might draw as living faith communities today? Yeah, I find this to be very difficult, a difficult story. And so what it does for me, at least, is more so than a message, it evokes in me questions. And one question that that I think very much relates to us is how much creativity do we have in our worship of God? If the imagery God provides, the Ark and the Kruvim and the intermediary God provides, Moses, they were unavailable. And that option that God had offered is absent. One could think, why was it so bad to seek out God in a different way? And in we, we also, we have an ethic of going lifnin mishurat hadin, going beyond the letter of the law in order to appreciate the full spirit of the law, which governs some of our practices today. So I guess I I would see the golden calf account maybe as a check on religious creativity. Um, One may be inspired to worship God in creative ways, and I think that's a good thing. But at least within traditional Judaism, not everything is up for grabs. Some things may be, there may be limitations at some point. The golden calf lets us know in that particular story, the limitation was on where God was going to descend, perhaps. Um, I would say the million dollar question for us today is how do we walk the fine line between creativity that is acceptable and laudable and creativity that is worthy of condemnation, that is unacceptable and illegitimate. And while perhaps not providing an answer, at least I think the golden calf account forces us to consider a problem and to consider the question of how much creativity do we have and can we use when worshiping God? Dr. Grant, thank you so much for joining us today and exploring this in extremely intriguing episode, both from the historical context and also bringing it full circle for us to today. A really a huge thank you, and we look forward to welcoming you back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe on 
Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And of course, do check out more of our exciting content, other podcasts that we have available, of course, at jewishquest.com. And we do look forward to welcoming you back again next week.